We are uh, in the second week of a brand new series here at all four of our campuses called Challenging Questions for the Church. And last week we dealt with the big one, is there life after death? And that was sort of the foundation of everything else, because if there isn't, then let's just like go home. Um, there's no point. And, and so we talked about the fact that death doesn't get the last word, and there's all kinds of death that you could experience. There's obviously physical death, but there's also living a dead-ended kind of life. And because Christ is risen, even now, as, as Pastor John says, eternal life begins now. A new kind of life, a forever friendship with Christ begins now. And so that's what we celebrated on Easter, that Jesus has beat death in all its forms, whether we're talking physical death, spiritual, emotional, relational, and even societal death. Christ is invaded, and he set up a brand new company, brand new country right under the noses of the powers that be, and it's called the church. So that was last week. This week we're going to talk about can organized religion be good, and my quick response is it's better than disorganized religion, but we'll move on. Um, I, that kind of worked. Yes, yes. Uh, don't forget to tip the waitstaff on your way back. Um, then next week we're going to talk about why does God allow suffering and dig in and, and avoid the easy answers, but look what the Bible has to say. And then the week thereafter we're going to deal with a topic that is sort of divided this country. Can women be church leaders? And the quick answer is, of course, it says so in the Bible. But you'll hear more about that in two weeks. And we'll talk about how God empowers all his people um, to, to, to lead and serve uh, in the various ways that we're all wired up. And then finally, aren't all religions the same? And again, the quick answer is nope. Um, but we'll take a look at a more serious view of what are the various major world religions and what are the solutions they offer to the problems they perceive and what's unique about the Jesus way. So that's kind of what's going to happen in the next few weeks as we walk through this series. This series also, if you have friends who are seeking and who are curious about walking with Christ and following Him, but have been either burnt out or burnt by the church, um, this, these are great topics to invite your friends to um, because we want to speak in an honest way, in an open way, acknowledging where we don't know the answers, but at the same time presenting some possibilities for people to consider. Today's topic for today is, is can organized religion be good? And like I said, it's better than disorganized, but we want to go a little bit further. But before we do that, we can't even answer that question until we figure out what the word religion means. And it's a very slippery word. It really wasn't used until about the 17th century. Before that, there was no such word as religion. But since we got the word, we probably ought to figure out what it means. So here's a definition from Webster's online dictionary. Yes, I googled it. And, and we have it here, and let's bring it up on the slides. Let's read that, if you can read it, just for fun. An organized system of beliefs, ceremonies, and rules used to worship a god or group of gods. So according to Webster, organized religion is all about what you're supposed to believe, what you're supposed to do, who and how you're supposed to worship. Sounds like a lot of what you're supposed to. It's not my idea of a good time. But wait, it gets worse. There was a book written by Gabe Lyons called Non-Christian where he did a survey of what people thought of religion. And here's what most people in the United States think organized religion is. Religion is irrelevant and weird. Religion's for the weak and those who need a crutch. Religion is for the uneducated and the people who either can't or refuse to think for themselves. Religion is rigid. Religion has lots of rules. It's stuffy. It's out of date. And it's even kind of strange. Likewise, religious people, and this came especially from people under 40, are angry, rigid, bigoted, close-minded, self-righteous, toxic, and they hurt people. Like the church lady. Anybody remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live? <laughs> yep. Now, you want to know where the church lady came from? Dana Carvey actually grew up in a church. 
And this was modeled after a woman who basically put him down all the time with Christian kindness and compassion. By the way, there are also church men, so guys, you're not off the hook. So, can organized religion be good? According to these people surveyed, the majority of America thinks no. And there's a good reason why they have a negative view of organized religion, because often these stereotypes are true. Often religious people are indeed angry, bigoted, and closed-minded. And there are indeed some churches that are hostile to people who aren't just like them. I grew up in one. You'll think this is really funny. The denominationally formerly known as mine, I won't name the guilty, um, we were always trying to get my Lutheran grandma saved because we knew all Lutherans were going to hell. So God decided to have some fun and made me a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> By the way, grandma's in heaven snickering. So, yeah, but they still exist, churches like that. And there are indeed some people who hide behind religion and use it as a crutch to refuse to think about life in any kind of responsible way. They'd rather have someone else tell them what to do. So yes, some of those stereotypes are indeed true. And even, it even gets worse. At many times, organ, organized religion really doesn't seem to have anything to do with real life. Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Football game might be more interesting. In fact, as Pastor Mike often says, often organized religion is giving answers for questions nobody is asking. And more tragically, just as often, organized religion has no answers for the questions people really are asking. And that's what we're hoping to do with this series, is address questions that people really do ask. Well, if Webster's gives a pretty boring and, and, and kind of not-so-fun definition of religion, and if you survey most people in America and they're not real thrilled with it, what does the Bible have to say about religion? Well, there's two key places in the New Testament where the word religion is used, at least in English Bibles. And the first one is 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul is writing to a young pastor who, who's pastoring one of the new churches that started after Jesus rose from the dead and people began to gather together into communities. And he, he quotes a poem. And let me just um, let me read what he wrote in 1 Timothy 15. He said, without question, this is the great mystery of our religion. Well, what is it? And here's what he said, Christ was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, announced among the angels, announced among the nations, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. Well, if you look at this thing here, doesn't that look a little bit like a poem? It's actually a hymn, most people think, from the early church. And this hymn was about the story of Jesus. So when someone asked Paul, what's your religion like? He told a story. And he told a story about this guy who showed up as a human being. You've got to think that's pretty weird. Because back in the first century, most gods or goddesses, they were regarded as distant and away from here, kind of like absentee landlords or managers who like to stay in their office all the time and not get on the shop floor. And the only time they show up is when someone is, is messing up. And usually they first of all start by sending a prophet who says, do I have to come down there? Where actually, with the story of Jesus, God did come down here. But it turned out not to be bad news because we were misbehaving, but good news because we needed rescuing. And so that's what it means. Christ arrived. The Messiah, the one that God had chosen to save the planet, had arrived in the flesh and person, in a body just like ours. And it says, vindicated in spirit. What's all that about? Because the world responded in angry negativity and said, we want you out of here. You interfere with our agendas. The powerful, both the political and the religious, 
And the educated elite conspired together and said, we must do away with that man. He is upending everything. He is messing with our polite little arrangements of power because Jesus kept hanging with all the wrong people. He kept messing what it meant to be properly religious. And so they had enough and they killed him as a traitor, an enemy of the Jewish religion and an enemy of the Roman state, strung him up on an instrument of torture we call the cross and pointed out and said, that's what happens to people who get uppity. Except he showed up three days later. And that was his vindication. It says, by the power of God's spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead. And it showed, indeed, he turned out to be the guy he claimed to be. He was Israel's God come to rescue them, even though they refused the rescue. And instead of saying, okay, I'm going to come back in revenge, because usually when you think of a film where people come back from the dead, what kind of film is it? Horror film. Zombie films, you know, like Zombie Burger downtown. So those taste good. But quite the opposite. He comes and he had every right to judge us and instead he forgives us. Peter, who denied him three times, gets his job back. In fact, Jesus had to tell him three times, you got your job back because he wouldn't believe it. Do you love me? Yes, you got your job back. Do you love me? Yes, you got your job back. Do you even like me? What do you mean you like it? Well, you don't believe me. You got your job back, dude. That's the Jesus of the stories. And so Peter, along with all the other followers of Jesus, began to announce it among the nations. And you'll see if you read the story of Acts, which is like the fifth book in the New Testament, how they begin to even go into the mighty Roman Empire and announce the stories of this strange Jewish God named Jesus who has come to rescue not only Jews, but the whole world. And then finally it talks about taken up into glory, which is what happened to Jesus 40 days after his resurrection. He was literally seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the language of the right hand in the first century meant the language of power. We still have it when we say somebody is, is their right-hand man or their right-hand woman. It means they're the one who gets stuff done. Jesus is the one who gets stuff done. And that's what this hymn is about. What's religion about? The story of Jesus who gets stuff done. But this hymn wasn't just about that. It's also a shorthand reminder for the big story of God's love and faithfulness. You see, God created this place in love. He created each one of us on purpose and for a purpose. But throughout history, every one of us has walked away. And God's response is to begin a rescue job. And so just at the beginning of time, after our first parents rebelled, he gave this very, very mysterious promise that one day he would put things back together. And he walked through and he called the strange family, Abraham and Sarah, who were a mess. You read their family and the three generations that follow, it makes desperate housewives look tame. And God works through it to rescue his people. And indeed, when God is challenged by the mighty Egyptian empire that is hell-bent on exterminating his people, he responds with what we call the exodus, the great event of freeing his people from slavery and ultimate genocide, and he rescues them on into the wilderness and on into the promised land. And on and on and on, they keep walking away from God's love and his rescue. And on and on, he keeps bringing them back to one day he decides, I'm going to deal with this once and for all, and he sends his son. And that's the focus of this hymn we've been talking about. But then it keeps on going. The story doesn't end there because then he says, as I have done, so you do. Go and make disciples. In other words, go and make people who imitate me. That's what a disciple is, somebody who imitates the master, in this case, Jesus. And we became the community of God's new people, inhabited by God's spirit, walking in God's power, participating with God until one day he's going to restore all things. Biblical religion doesn't seem to have much to do with Webster's definition of what most people think religion is. It ain't about rules. 
nor is biblical religion all about being uptight, upright, and grumpy, and bigoted, and angry, and brittle, and small-minded. It's about actually having your mind blown wide open. Because biblical religion is about a story, an incredible story of a passionate God who created us and loved us so much that he'd rather die than be without us. And that is exactly what he did. But biblical religion is way more than that. It isn't just a story. Because if we stop with that story, nothing really happens. It's also about a story that we live. Biblical religion is actually about a story that becomes our story. When we begin to believe the story of Jesus, then our story runs headlong into it, and everything that's broken about our story gets flipped on its head. We experience a resurrection kind of life. For the first time, our life is no longer dead, and it's wide open, and we begin living God's story. We find this in the book of James. Here's what James has to say about religion. This is James chapter 1, verse 26. I love this. This is one of my favorite guys because he just gets to the point. There's, two, two, there's sort of two letters in, in the New Testament where the writers are, are they, they drop hand grenades just left and right in, in, into the group of people they're writing to. There's John who does it sneaky. He kind of does a sneak attack where out of nowhere a bomb goes off and you go, who did that? And John's like, who me? James, no, he's more blunt. He just throws it and goes, incoming! So here we go. Here's what James writes to the community of people that are going to receive his letter. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue... You are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. He doesn't care what you can know. He doesn't care how many Bible verses you memorize. He doesn't care how pious you are. He doesn't care whether you have smoked or not smoked or whatever. If you can't control your tongue, don't you dare call yourself religious. James is real practical. It's about how you treat people. And then he says, here is what pure and genuine religion is. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means this. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Let's read that together. Caring for widows and orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. By the way, this is nothing new. If you were to read Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Malachi, Joel, Habakkuk, and on and on and on, they always talk about the fact that God, true faithfulness to God is taking care of the powerless. And they often will say widow, orphan, and immigrant. Widow, orphan, and immigrant are like the three. They often call that the trinity of the powerless. It says that a true follower of Israel's God, and likewise James says a true follower of Jesus cares for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. People who have no power, people who have no rights in society are precisely the ones that Jesus' people care for. Think about that. That's religion. But it's also real practical because to be religious means to even it impacts what we say. We don't tear each other down like a bunch of church ladies or churchmen. Indeed, we encourage each other. There's a Christian leader named Patrick Lencioni. He talks about telling the kind truth. That means that when we encourage each other, we just don't say what other people want to hear. We also tell the truth when it stings, but we tell it kindly. And we tell it to the person who needs to. We don't back channel. We don't triangle. We don't gossip. Instead, we listen to each other. And we engage in each other even when we disagree without trying to fix each other because it's God who does the fixing. So true religion is both what we say and it's also what we do. Because the Bible says if we're truly religious, we serve each other as Christ has served us. We serve the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, 
the ones at the margins, the ones at the edge, and not only just the victims, but also the people who've made bad decisions. Because which one among us hasn't made a bad decision? Think of the woman at the well. That woman was a mixed bag. She had been sinned against, and she'd done her share of sinning. Chances are the first couple of husbands just treated her like a rag doll that they'd used up. And she began to believe that that's all she was worth, and so she began to make bad decisions. To finally, Jesus says, the one you're living with now isn't even your husband because she'd given up on any kind of covenant love. Why bother? Jesus tells the truth, and you can see from the reaction of the woman at the well, she is not put down, she is not shamed. In fact, she goes right back to the village that's kicked her out and begins to be the first preacher in the Gospel of John. Speaking of, can women be church leaders? And she says, can you see? Could this be the Messiah? He's told me everything I've done. But he told it to her in a way that was life-giving, not life-taking. We are, as the Jesus people, truly the religious people, the life-givers, not the life-takers. And this means we do not let the world corrupt us. When I was a kid in the church belonging to the denomination formerly known as mine, um, they told us that what it meant not to be corrupt by the world was don't read comic books. So I had my little guilty pleasure of a stash of, of, of you know, uh, Avengers and, 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 you know, and Spider-Man all under my bed. And well, Mom found them and made me burn them. Um, I also had records. <gasps> yeah, we had record-breading parties at our churches. We weren't supposed to go to movies, not even Disney movies, because you never know what you'll see. No dancing. You know, all that, you know, all that bad stuff. And we thought that's what it meant to be not corrupted by the world. When if you actually read around in Scripture... Well, you know, you want to make sure that you don't get garbage in the brain, but that's not where the Scripture lands. Scripture puts it this way. Not to be corrupted by the world means that we don't let the world force us into a dead-ended life where it's all about me. You want to know what corrupts us? Consumer culture. I'm really not worried about how many movies you go to. I want to know what your life orientation is like. Is it all about pulling in? It's all about me, mine? Or is it all about giving away? I just read something by a business leader, Seth Godin. He says... Everybody chases success like it's the end goal and they miss happiness. He's not a Christian, but I thought he had something when he said this. He said that people who are generous tend to be happy, and statistically, because they're generous, then they're happy, and happy people tend to be more successful. Unhappy people, no matter what they look like on the outside, don't view themselves as successful. Happy people, no matter what their station in life, view themselves as successful. And it starts with generosity. I've actually found this in something as basic as giving my tithe or my offering. I've learned that when I feel like money's tight, go give some away, and then I feel like I've got a million dollars. When I hang on to it, it feels like I don't have enough. And that's just what the Bible gets out. Outward-bound people live better lives than inward-turned people. The world wants to corrupt us into inward-turned people where it's all about me, where we believe the only one who's going to take care of me is me, so I better take care of me. And the truth of the matter is, no, Jesus is risen and he's got my back. He gets the last word, even over death, so I do not have to think I have to take care of me because i got someone else watching my back. And that is the truth. And what does that mean? It means we get to live instead a confident, proactive life that's not so centered, but it's a life instead that focuses on making life better for those around us. That kind of organized religion I can deal with. So where did the, where did the writer James get all this stuff about watching the tongue or visiting widows and orphans? Well, we already talked about the fact that he got it from the Old Testament, but even more to the point, he got it straight from Jesus. 
Because if you begin to look at the story of Jesus in some detail, you find that he went to all the wrong people. He went into the midst of life, especially the places where the pain was, where life shows up at the edges, where people had been thrown in a pit or where they had dug themselves a hole. It didn't care. He wasn't worried about perfect people, but he went to the people that all the good people thought weren't worth the time of day. And he hung around with them. And then he invited them to follow him. And he healed their broken lives. And he set them free from their demons. And then he invited these people to be his followers and live in a brand new kind of community with him. A giving things away community. An internal life kind of community. A resurrection from the dead kind of community. A make life better kind of community. And then he taught his followers to do the same thing he did. And if you read around in the Gospels and you read around in the book of Acts right after the Gospels, you discover Jesus' followers are hanging with people at the edges. That they are the way now that God heals people and sets them free from their demons. That they now are inviting people to follow Jesus and live in the new kind of community that Jesus created. And then they teach those people to do the same thing. And on and on it goes because we are the community of Jesus followers who teach other people to be Jesus followers who teach other people to Jesus Jesus followers, we are called to make disciple-making disciples, and that's what we have been called to do. That's what it means to be religious, to follow, other, to follow Jesus, to act like Jesus, and then treat other people like Jesus does so that others would know Jesus and his love and forgiveness, so that we ourselves would live in a forever friendship that even death can't stop, and we invite others to do the same, where we are together healed by him and made whole even in this life and to tell others what he has done, and to be the way that God touches others with his love and forgiveness. This is all what the Bible calls religion. But there's another word for what the Bible calls us, and this is even more fun. It's called salvation. Most of us, when, if you were to ask the person on the street, what is salvation, the response would usually be, well, when I go to the good place when I die. Not bad, that's partially true. Yes, there is life after death. We dedicated a whole Easter weekend to it. But the deal is this. Heaven starts now. Eternal life starts now. Life after death has come forward into life and it starts now with Jesus. Salvation definitely includes life after death. But we do not have to wait for it when we die. You see, when we become followers of Jesus, the first thing we're saved from is a a dead-ended life that we're already living where it's all about me, where I live in an anxious, reactive, self-centered life where I think I'm the only one looking out for me. And then we are saved, or better put, we are rescued into a brand new kind of life, a forever kind of life where we learn to take on the character and the compassion of Jesus, where our lives are not just about us anymore. That's what the Bible calls eternal life, when our lives are not just about us anymore. Think about that. Now, this is tough for us to get in our brains because many people think heaven is like the upper, uh, ultimate upper-class suburb in the sky, sort of Glen Oaks up in the, in the afterlife. You know, big 8,000-square-foot homes, perfectly manicured lawns, a Ferrari and Maserati, and just if you needed a Beamer. You know, just a Beamer. You know, and the problem about that, that's a life all about us. And many people think that the afterlife is a life all about us. Jesus says, well, yeah, that also starts with an H. But it's only four letters. Jesus thinks the life all about us is sheer hell. And that's why he warns us to stay out of it. Folks, Jesus has come to give us heaven now. 
And yes, it'll go past death and right on beyond death to the great resurrection where God restores all things. But it gets to start now. We get to be part of how God saves other people from their brokenness. We get to be high-impact people. Our lives will matter because Christ flows through us and He matters. So my question to you is a good old Southern Baptist question. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be rescued? Do you want to be rescued from a small-minded, dead-ended life of self-centered anxiety? Do you want to live instead in a confident, wide-open, joy-filled life focused on making life better for those around you? Do you want to be a part of how God saves and touches others with his love and forgiveness? Jesus wants to give you that kind of salvation. And he wants to give it to you completely for free. There's nothing you have to do to, to get this life or earn it or merit up to it or sign up to it. Remember, Jesus went to the people that everybody in the first century called the rejects, the losers. And he said, come and join my band. Don't even have to audition. And we still don't even have to audition. Because Jesus doesn't care about your past. He doesn't care about your secrets. He doesn't care about what's going on. Because he can take care of all that. Because he's in the forgiving and healing and eternal life kind of business. So you can trust him. And you can follow him. And you can let him change your life because that's just what he'll do. Because that's what he's all about. A high impact adventure that will last more than a lifetime. It will last forever. Let's rise and pray together. Father, we thank you indeed that at the right time your son came and showed up as a human being and he lived among us and he brought your kingdom of heaven with him to earth and said, come join me in this kingdom. Lord, make us hungry to live as the Jesus kind of people. Make us hungry to live this kind of eternal life where for the first time we can stop thinking about ourselves and put our eyes on you and watch you heal others through us. And Lord, we thank you that this doesn't end when we die, but just keeps on going. We thank you and did that you've told us that we don't have to fear because you've given us the gift of the kingdom. And so now we pray for that kingdom as your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we close with a blessing, if, if this is the kind of life you want, this kingdom kind of life, if this is the kind of religion you've been longing for, We've got some prayer stations. I believe they're in the front, if that's correct. I, they're kind of over on this side. Feel free to come up there, and people would be happy to pray for you. I know uh, if you look for, for Pastor John or Pastor Andy or any of those with the, uh, the Hope Staff name tag, um, just search them out and say, I'm hungry for this kingdom. Um, they'd be happy to talk to you with you as well. Now, may this amazing Lord who has brought the kingdom of heaven to this earth, a forever kind of kingdom, a kingdom of life and love and joy be with you and now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have a great weekend.